in three, in two, in one. Hi, everybody. Tim Anderson here, the Appraiser's Advocate. Thank you for sitting down with me today for this podcast. We call this one, What Do You Mean I Have to Support My Opinion? In a recent consulting session, we were going over a report the appraiser prepared specifically for a first mortgage lender client. From that review, the appraiser wanted to learn how to make sure that appraisal and that appraisal report complied with USPAP's standards one and two. We were discussing the adjustments in the sales comparison approach. Adjustments are dangerous in that they are inherently subjective. This is because even with plenty of data, the adjustments result in, at best, a range of value indications, not a value point. From within that range, we choose the value point. This is where the subjectivity comes in. Long story short, the adjustments on the grid were, how shall we say, open to challenge. Thus, so was the final value conclusion. However, the issue here was not the size or the direction of the adjustments. Rather, it was the fact there was no market support for them, other than the appraiser's, quote, 30 years of experience, unquote. Generally, this is shorthand for, I just pulled them out of the air, but they make sense. And besides, they're just my opinion anyway. We're going to circle back to that sentiment later. Then we got to the bottom line. In the appraiser's defense, the adjusted range of the comparable sales was indeed smaller than their unadjusted range. That relationship moves things along in the proper direction. This is a plus to be sure, but it is not the be-all and end-all of the adjustment process. Post-adjustment, the range was, for purposes of this podcast, say 275000 to 340000 which, as a foreshadowing of what is to come, did encompass the neighborhood's predominant value. Frankly, that's almost a 25% spread, which is really too wide. But that's a matter for another podcast. Our concern here is the appraiser's value opinion. Given this range, the final value should have fallen within these two extremes. It did with a value conclusion of $282,000. I would have called it two eighty dollars or two eighty-five, dollars but it wasn't my appraisal. So $282,000 was well within the range, but clearly at the low end. That's okay too, since the appraiser must conclude at a point value, and 282 k was a point value within the adjusted range. However, the question was, does that conclusion make sense in the context of the appraisal and report? You'll recall that the credibility of an appraisal has a metric. That metric is the appraisal's intended use. In this case, the client and intended user were the same entity, a national lender. Therefore, Fannie Mae would eventually end up with the paper, so the context of the intended use was a Fannie Mae loan. To understand this context, it is proper to look at the $282,000 value conclusion as Fannie Mae would. First, $282,000 was below the predominant value the appraiser indicated on page one of the report. In and of itself, that was fine. However, it implied the subject lacked something many of the other houses in the area had. Yet, in the report, was nothing to explain why the value opinion came in below the neighborhood's predominant value. So, to come in below the predominant value is not in and of itself a problem. That does become a problem, however, 
when there's no explanation as to why this is so. There may have been a very proper, simple, straightforward reason for the subject's less than typical value. But given what was not within the four corners of the report itself, there was no way to know this. Congruent with this potential problem was the fact that, on page one of the report, the appraiser's language made it clear the subject was in average condition. Yet, to opine the subject's market value is less than the neighborhood's predominant value implies something. It implies that there is something less than average or less than typical about the subject. This most assuredly merits an explanation. A house that does not ascend to a neighborhood's predominant value presents an investment risk Fannie Mae must account for to its investors. If the appraiser does not provide an analysis and or an explanation of this potential extra market risk, Fannie Mae rightly wants to know why. She then looks to the lender to answer that question, who looks to the appraiser. Since lenders do not like to look stupid, that lender will do its best to make the appraiser look stupid instead. There was another potential issue. In the report's improvements section, the language of the report showed some of the subject's components to be in good condition. This notwithstanding, there was nothing in that report's language to describe any of the subject's components as less than average, in other words, fair or poor. Yet the final value opinion did not ascend to the neighborhood's predominant value. Therefore, so far, there was nothing in the report to explain why the subject did not ascend to this predominant value. Indeed, everything so far in the report implied the subject should have completed this ascent. In the sales comparison approach itself, there were no adjustments for differences in age and condition, site, location, view, and so forth. An adjustment to any one of these areas would have gone a long way toward explaining why the subject did not ascend to the neighborhood's predominant value. But again, there was nothing there to explain this anomaly. In the cost approach, the math there assumed a 60-year total economic life, a 40-year chronological age, and a 20-year effective age. In the language of the report, there was nothing to support any of these ages. The chronological age is a fact to be found, not an opinion. According to USPAP's Standard Rule 1-4B3, the market is the source of total economic life and accrued depreciation. These are not difficult to measure from market data, although the measurement process may be time-consuming. From page 571 in the 15th edition of the Appraisal of Real Estate comes the mathematical formula to calculate depreciation. One of the components of depreciation is its effective age. Therefore, by manipulating the formula algebraically, it is possible to extract from the market the subject's effective age, as well as that of the comps. Therefore, in the cost approach, there are no opinions other than the site value. Each step in this approach is a fact to be found, a fact capable of extraction from the market. Yet, despite the precision that can exist in the cost approach, this appraisal and report omitted those analyses, thus also omitted the precision those analyses can provide. That report also omitted an explanation of why the subject's market value did not ascend to the neighborhood's predominant value. Now it's time to circle back to that question as to why the appraiser reached the value conclusion of $282,000. To that question, the appraiser responded, well, th that's just my opinion. 
This is true. A value conclusion is an opinion. It did not exist until the instant the appraiser formed it. Yet, in pressing the appraiser to market support that opinion, the responses remain variations on, well, that's just my opinion. Here is a simple real estate appraisal truth. An opinion is correct when it has a base in facts, evidence, analyses, market support, and logic and reason. An opinion is just plain wrong, at least from the standpoint of a real estate appraisal, when those components of an opinion's foundation do not exist, or the appraiser cannot chronicle them. Now, there was a reason the subject did not ascend to the neighborhood's predominant value. Frankly, it was because the subject was older, smaller, and on a smaller site than was typical for residences in the area. This was a function to a great extent of its chronological age, when houses were simply smaller as a function of market choice, market demand. This advanced age and smaller than typical improvements in site sizes contributed to the property having greater than typical accrued depreciation. A functional obsolescence factor, which the appraiser did not recognize in the cost approach or sales comparison approach, was likely the culprit. That the lot was also smaller than typical did not help any. In all fairness, it was clear from the entirety of the report these items contributed to the anomaly of the subject not ascending to the neighborhood's predominant value. That the improvements were smaller and older than typical was self-evident. So was the smaller site size. Yet the report made no issue of these self-evident deviations from what was typical in the neighborhood. It is possible to interpret that silence as evidence the value opinion was not the beneficiary of such analyses. In this instance, that silence was a function of analyses in which the appraisal did not engage. That omission is open to interpretation as lack of due diligence in forming the value opinion. Appraisal boards can interpret lack of due diligence as misleading. It is the point of this podcast to make it clear we appraisers cannot hide behind our opinions. That a value conclusion is an opinion is obvious, yet some appraisers boldly and enthusiastically proclaim that because their value conclusion is an opinion, it therefore can't be wrong. It is, after all, just an opinion. By extension, they also proclaim their opinion is not open to review, criticism, or change. Bold enthusiasm notwithstanding, these conclusions are just plain wrong. Calling an opinion merely an opinion does not license the appraiser to form that opinion improperly, poorly, or baselessly. An opinion's value has its foundation in the quality of the data, evidence, analyses, logic and reasoning, and market support behind it. Clients don't pay us for value opinions anymore. Since collateral underwriter, the client already has a tight idea of the property's value well before we submit the appraisal report. The lender has this generally by the time the borrowers have told the loan officer the address of the property they want to buy. What lender clients want from us are our analyses of what is happening in the neighborhood, of the investment risks in that neighborhood. This includes a complete analysis and summary of why what is happening is happening. That it is happening is self-evident. It's our job to interpret the market and then to explain to the client why it's happening. So lender clients buy the quality of our analyses, not the statements of our value conclusions. 
Do our value conclusions enjoy the support of the market, or are they merely hopeful conjecture? Our lender clients are willing to pay a lot for the high quality of deep analyses. For a mere statement of value conclusions, not so much. Now, ask yourself this question. If your appraisal fees are not high enough, what are you selling? Are you selling the high quality of deep analyses to supply your client with decision-making information? Or are you selling mere statements of your value conclusion, which provide your client with nothing more than a baseless opinion? If it's the latter, sooner or later, you'll need to face the fact a lender can get an analysis-free, support-free value conclusion statement from an AVM. And which is cheaper, an AVM or an appraisal? Again, please let me thank you for stopping your busy schedule to listen to this podcast. I'm Tim Anderson, the Appraiser's Advocate. I'm here to help. Please contact me at tim at theappraisersadvocate.com. My website is theappraisersadvocate.com, and you can hear my podcast on my website. Again, get in touch with me. I look forward to helping you. It will be an honor, really. My best to you, my best to your family, and we're clear. Oh, and by the way, Are your professional fees really high enough?